you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me this morning to the book of Titus as we begin a new sermon series through this book entitled The Faith-Filled Church. One thing that wasn't announced as you're flipping there to Titus is these little baby bottles. No, this isn't my drink for the morning. Uh, these are out right outside these doors. Uh, if you grab one of these, start filling them up. This is for the Care Net, uh, for the Elizabeth House. Um, and a way that we can support a uh, great work uh, in our region, uh, in our city. And so please grab one of those, have your kids start collecting the coins, fill that up, and then bring it back uh, on Father's Day, uh, which is next week, right? Right? Spouses? Children? Just a reminder, Father's Day next week. All right, the book of Titus is uh, where we're at this morning. We can certainly learn a lot from children, can't we? can't we? This past Saturday, not yesterday, but the day uh, Saturday before, we went to the pool as a family, and as expected, each of our four children demonstrated varying emotions and attitudes about that chlorine-infused wonderland that lay in front of us over there in Watertown. Karis, who is often the most afraid of our children, uh, of most situations, she showed no fear. Uh, She conquered the 216-foot water slide over and over and over again. Uh, Chloe, who is our most bold and outgoing child, she wouldn't leave our side. She stood there holding on to us, finally built up just enough courage to jump off the side of the the pool into the two-and-a-half-foot deep water. Haddon, like Chloe, acts tough and confident, but he, like Chloe, was also very timid and shy about the water. It took him a while even to just dunk his head into the water for a split second. Now, Kayla, our fourth and what we had hoped to be our most calm and quiet child, she had no clue about what was going to go on. Uh, So at first, she was very fearful. It took us a while to get her to even go down that little sea lion slide that they had there in in Watertown. She finally found enough nerve to go down that and then it began all the nerve came out uh, to even just jump off the side without us there Uh, thankfully we saw that and caught her before she went under uh, and swallowed a gallon of that chlorine pee mixture goodness that we're swimming in but each of our children we can learn a little bit from Kayla and her actions We could say lacked common sense or any understanding uh, as a two-year-old. But truthfully, what I think we can learn from Kayla's actions were that they spoke more about her faith in her parents. You see, what I didn't tell you is that throughout that whole time, the two and a half hours at the pool, we had coaxed her over and over again just to jump off the side. And each time, uh, she would lean just far enough timidly forward to just kind of lightly fall forward into our arms, and we were always there. We were always catching her. And so she had, time and time again, experienced our ability to catch her. Each time she gained more and more trust, more and more faith. Her actions were filled with faith in her parents, who we had proven faithful, at least at that time. As we open this book of Titus, I believe the purpose of this book is to fill us with faith in a God who time and time again, proves himself faithful. To fill us with 
childlike faith. This short three-book, or three-chapter book is a personal letter written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Titus, who is a church planter on the island of Crete. Paul is writing this to encourage and exhort Titus to ensure that the gospel permeates the church and especially its leaders. You see, Paul understood the context to which Titus is in. For he and Titus had visited Crete on one of Paul's missionary journeys, so Paul knew the culture well. At this point, Titus had been sent back to this small island of Crete to, as we see in verse 5 of chapter 1, to set right what was left undone, specifically to appoint elders in every town. This, however, was not going to be a simple task for Titus. For false teachers had already begun to deceive these young believers. And not only that, the culture of Crete itself created a massive obstacle to building and planting churches that would survive and thrive for the glory of God. As a small snapshot of what Crete was all about, Paul points out later in chapter 1 that even one of their own philosophers, a philosopher named Epimenides, has been quoted saying, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Not a very flattering commentary on his own culture, is it? Nonetheless, Paul expected the gospel, even in Crete, to produce real faith and real godliness in everyday life. So to that end, he writes this letter, stressing an inseparable link between faith and practice between what we believe and how we behave. Now, the truth be told, Crete was not much different than the pluralistic society that we find ourselves in today. The society that derides the truth and belittles our faith. Just as was the case for Titus ministering to the churches there in Crete, situated in a society like that, there's also a pressing need for churches and leaders today to proclaim a strong, explicit gospel, both in word and in deed. Churches that are faith-filled in their doctrine, their conduct, and in joining God in his mission. So, being positioned on the outskirts of a city like Madison, which boasts some of the same attributes as the island of Crete, my prayer is that this study through this book of Titus will serve us well as we proclaim the gospel as we rub shoulders with our neighbors, co-workers, and friends, those who would ridicule our faith and often be perplexed by our conduct. So it's my prayer as we come to this book that this study would fill us with fresh faith in the God who is faithfully building his church for his glory. Today we're starting off in verses 1 through 4 of this book. It's just the simple greeting from Paul. It might be one of the most overlooked portions of a letter, especially in our own personal study. If you're a studier of the word, you might come to a book and you see those first four four verses and you skip over them. I I know it's just Paul writing to Titus. I'll skip over that. But here, Paul not only greets Titus, he lays a, a solid theological foundation for the entire book and provides us with the purpose and pattern for gospel ministry within the church. So follow along as I read this morning, verses 1 through 4. And again, as your email told you, we're uh, starting this morning uh, our study through Titus in the Christian Standard Bible. And so I'll be reading from that this morning, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which, with, with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is God's word. Let us thank him for it this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word. And even as we've just sung, we need your help as we come to your word for you to speak to us, for it to change our lives once again. Many of us who sit here have been people who have learned throughout our lifetime your word. And it has changed us. But also, because of that familiarity, we might grow cold to your word. We might just set it aside throughout the week. Even on Sundays as we open it, we might say, hey, I know this, and so I don't need to pay that much, of, much attention. But God, would you awaken our souls as we sing? Would you co- uncover our blinded eyes to see you as this faithful God who desires to fill us with faith for your glory and for our joy in you and you alone in your name. Amen. This morning, the big idea that we have from these four verses is that God desires his church to be filled with faith, growing in knowledge and increasing in hope through his word and for his work. Let me say that again. God desires his church to be filled with faith, growing in knowledge and increasing in hope through his word and for his work. You see here, God graciously allows us to have a front seat into this ongoing disciple relationship between Paul and Titus. And he does so in order to stir our faith, stir our knowledge and hope in his work through the preaching of his word and leading us to godly lives. You see, church, while it's often far easy for us to forget, God's word still works. This word that we hold in our hands still works. So we first observed just how it is that we are filled with faith in verse number one. Paul is a former prosecutor of the church, a vicious enemy of Christ. But now he humbly identifies himself as, notice the first phrase there, Paul, a servant of God. Now he is a slave, a servant to the one he had spent the majority of his life opposing. Now he is in submission to God. He has come to understand that he's no longer his own, for he had been bought with a price. This self-identification as a servant of God is unique to the three books that are known as the pastoral epistles. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and this book of Titus. In his letter to, Ty- to Timothy, he only refers himself to or as an apostle of Christ Jesus, which we do see here in Titus, but... This phrase, servant of God, is unique. But it reveals that he is appealing to Titus not just primarily on his authority as an apostle, but out of a submission to God the Father. And so at the outset, he sets a tone for the rest of the book. He sets this tone of submission to the creator of all things. A tone of humility that should be characteristic really of all believers, not just Paul. A servant of God. 
It's then and only then after setting this tone does he add the identification of an apostle of Christ. Apostle being one who was sent by Christ. The word apostle has a couple meanings in the New Testament. One author writes, it's used to refer to a pioneer church planter. Barnabas, for example, in Acts chapter 14 is called an apostle. But it's also used as most common to us to refer to people who were witnesses to Jesus and whose testimony was the foundation of the church. The twelve disciples with Judas replaced by Matthias in Acts 1. Plus Paul, who though he had not known Jesus when Jesus was on earth, he had met him on that road to Damascus and received a special calling as an apostle to the Gentiles. So what Paul says here as an apostle, he's likely using both senses of the term. Both a witness to Christ through that Damascus Road experience, but also as one sent, as a church planter. For he had been one who had gone to the island of Crete, who had shared the gospel and seen fruit born out of the gospel. And so he's appealing both in authority, but also in the mission that he had been sent as a church planter. So with these first two phrases, Paul sets a model for Titus, for the church in Crete, and really for us today, that servanthood ought to be the heart of gospel ministry, and that any authority in the church must be sent by and in submission to Jesus Christ. We as a church ought to be filled with this heart of servanthood. And any, any authority, any leadership that God would raise in our church should be ones that are sent by God and who are always in submission to him. Already at the outset of this letter, he challenges us to recalibrate our lives and the life of our church, to recalibrate our life toward servanthood and submission. And so we have to ask ourselves already in these first verses, is that the essence of our life? Is that the essence of our lives as a church? Are we known as servants in submission to the Creator? Are we? Having introduced himself, Paul now describes the purpose. So having laid that tone and foundation, he, he explains the purpose of gospel ministry. Look down at verse 1. Paul writes, first of all, that it is for the faith of God's elect. His ministry is to fill God's elect with faith. As a servant and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, the purpose and goal of his ministry was both to foster and to nurture the faith of God's chosen people. His ministry was both by the proclamation of the gospel, in which dead hearts would come alive by faith, by the Spirit, but also to proclaim the gospel in a way that would increase the faith of God's chosen, who had already re responded in repentance and faith. We see this throughout the New Testament as Paul shows uh, this ministry of the gospel, as he preaches it to everyone, confident that those to whom God has chosen... God's elect will respond in faith. For faith is what brings people from death to life. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, but, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace, 
And by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works that no one can boast. You see, the truth is, each one of us was lifeless. We were a lifeless corpse until the gospel broke in, till it breathed life into our souls, till it ignited faith in our hearts. Friends, that is the power of the gospel that Paul declares time and time again, that salvation from beginning to end is all of God's sovereign grace. Oh, that's a mystery to us. When we see this word, God's elect, it's a mystery, but it's a glorious mystery nonetheless. Whereby we know that God in His infinite wisdom, His unconditional, His faithful mercy and love, chooses sinners like you and like I. He awakens us to life in Him. Paul's point here is not primarily to emphasize and expound on this doctrine of election or predestination, but rather... He wants to highlight an ide- our identity as God's chosen. He wants to grab Titus's attention, the churches that Titus is ministering to, and many years later, he wants to grab our at- attention and say, look at your identity. You are God's chosen. That's a far too often overlooked facet of God's work of saving grace. We are his chosen ones. Just take a moment to, to think about that. Dead, but alive because God has chosen. That certainly is amazing grace. You might remember back in elementary school on the playground when a game of kickball or two-hand touch football was about to begin and two captains would stand there and start to choose who was supposed to be on their team. If you happen to be one of the first picks, as I'm sure Chris was for all the games of football, you remember the kind of confidence that gave you for the game? If you were the first one picked, oh man, this is going to be a good game. I'm first, we're going we're gonna to beat that other team. Hearing your name called as one of the first to join a team brought this boost of adrenaline and a certain boldness in how you were going to play that game. Because being chosen gives rise to confidence, trust, faith. And so you see, our faith rests in the undeserved grace of the Father who chooses us, adopts us as His own, and not because of anything good that we've done. Doesn't that fill us with even more faith, more confidence in our faithful God who has chosen us? I love how the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, relishes in this truth when he writes, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was even born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me or chosen me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should look Why he should have looked upon me with such special love. As God's chosen ones, this truth that we have been elected should increase our faith all the more. And that's Paul's point here, even in his greeting, to begin to fill us with faith. As we remember our past, dead in sins, slaves to disobedience and Now rejoice in the grace and filled with faith for the present and for the future. 
But the faith of the church is not the only purpose of gospel ministry. So as Paul continues, we also observe that this faith generates our growing in knowledge. In particular, look at the end of verse 1. Paul has in mind the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. You see, Paul's not content with the ministry of just seeing people simply come to a stagnant faith, so to speak. He fervently labors to ensure that those who, saw, who he saw come to Christ would then grow further in their faith and grow through a knowledge of the truth and that both their faith and knowledge would lead to a conformity to the image of Christ, to their godliness. Paul's goal was the beginning of faith in the past, the continuation progress, the multiplication of faith in the present, and, as we'll see later, the completion of faith in eternity. So notice that Paul is not just content to say the knowledge of truth here. He doesn't just leave truth in our heads. He moves it out to our actions, to our hands. Knowledge must not be an end in and of itself, for, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge of the truth should rightly lead to what Paul is telling us here. Rightly lead to godliness. To our maturity in the faith. What we believe ought to affect how we live. And how we live must demonstrate what we believe. Especially in the context that Titus is in. Where these false teachers were teaching doctrine that would lead to corrupt behavior. This connection he makes here between the knowledge of the truth that leads that to, to godliness, the truth that the authentication of truth through fruit born in changed lives was essential for the church to understand and apply. The faith these believers were filled with and their knowledge of the truth was to bear fruit, to make a difference in the lives that they lived. So they were to live distinctly different from their neighbors, their co-workers. Again, Tim Chester, a commentator, writes this. This pursuit of godliness in people is not separate from Paul's pursuit of faith in people. As our faith and knowledge grow, so we will grow in godliness. The more we understand what God has done for us in Christ, the more we will love him, and the more we should live for him. Paul expands on this later in chapter 2, and we'll, we'll get there in a couple weeks. He expands on this truth, stating that the truth not only leads us toward godly lives, but also away from ungodliness. So quickly note, look at chapter 2, verse 11. Notice what this truth is. Here in chapter 1, he doesn't expound on what this word truth is, but here in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared. It leads us to live in a godly way and flee ungodliness. You see, the truth is the grace of God in the gospel. Paul's goal was not just converts, but everyday disciples who knew the gospel well who preached it to themselves, those that would hear and believe, those who would hear and have their lives changed by it. The author James gives us a vivid illustration of this in chapter 1. So turn there to James chapter 1 with me. Just a couple pages over. Titus, Hebrews, James. 
James chapter 1 and verse 22, James writes, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. You see, if I were to wake up each morning, look into the mirror, notice the bedhead, the blemishes, the drool all over my face, and just, just walk away from that mirror, not doing anything about any of that, you would all think that I was a couple fries short of a Happy Meal. You would be saying, that boy ain't right. What's wrong with that guy? I mean, he just saw what was wrong with him in the mirror, and he did nothing about it. James tells us, and Paul implies here in Titus, that having a knowledge of who we are and what areas need to be changed ought to lead us to action. Not just walking away from the word, doing nothing. This should lead us to change, to looking like the image of the one we see in this word. Knowledge of the truth which should lead to action. Knowledge of what I look like in the mirror should lead me to action, to take change, to make changes. And sadly, the problem Titus faced with the false teachers in Crete is one we also face today within the church. For far too many believers are just content to be in the word, but not like the word. And if we're honest ourselves, you and I may fit that mold too. Oh, we're, we're very knowledgeable of the word. We can say all the verses. We've grown up in Sunday school and in church. But we fail to daily apply that knowledge that we have in our head to our hands. We're hearers, but not doers. And Paul calls us here to a faith rooted in the undeserved grace of God in Christ, but also to a knowledge of that grace and a knowledge that's lived out in our conduct, faith and practice. He calls us to what a pastor, Jeff Vanderstelt, has termed a gospel fluency. A knowing the gospel, knowing this truth so well that we become fluent in it. We speak it. We think it. We live changed lives by it. So we must ask ourselves, are we, do we have a knowledge of the truth that is leading us to godliness? And if not, we must turn in repentance from lives that aren't applying the word. And in faith to Christ who can give us the faith to apply. We not only see the gospel ministry has a goal of filling us with faith and growing our knowledge, leading us to godliness, but also we see an increasing in hope. Look at verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, that God who cannot lie promised before time began. As he continues to explain the purpose of his ministry, he directs our focus to the future. In the hope of eternal life, he sets this gospel ministry in its proper context. And oh, what amazing context it is. Eternity. Eternal life. What Paul does, and what Titus is to do, and 
what we are to do is set in the context of forever. We have this blessed hope given to us by the resurrected Christ. And so being filled with faith would generate our growing in knowledge, leading to God and living. And all of this rest in this hope, this confident certainty that we have in Christ. You see, church, our hope is not just wishful thinking. It's not just a a pipe dream or even a likelihood. It is certain. Because as Paul continues, it is promised before time began by the God who cannot lie. This is an amazing statement, again, in just this short introductory greeting from Paul to Titus. He's saying here our hope of eternal life is firmly established in the promised, never-changing, always-truthful word from God. Because God said it, it will happen. We can be certain our hope is unquestionable, for our hope rests in our great God. So as we read these words, again, that should fill us with faith, that our hope is not just wishful thinking, oh, I, I, I kind of hope one day I will, I will do enough good things to gain eternal life. No, it is confident and certain because God has said it is. For those of us, of you, who still use that old-fashioned checkbook, to a small, certain extent, this is a type of certainty you have when you write a check for something that's really important, a special purpose or purchase. You usually don't write a check just hoping the money will be in the account. Maybe if I write it for $2,000, it'll show up. No, we don't just write it with a one in five chance that the money will actually be there. At least I hope you don't. We write out the check knowing fully well with certainty that the money we are promising is in our account. That the individual we're writing that check to, that company, that business we're writing the check to, will be able to receive the money that we're writing. Our certainty informs the investment that we're making. And so the investment we're making in this purchase is is shown in our writing out that check. And so too, our confident certainty in our promised eternal life informs the investment that we make in our lives today. We know the quantity of life we have in God is forever. Forever, eternal life. And the quality of life we have is in Christ. In Christ, starting today, this eternal life starts the moment we turn in faith and repentance to our Savior. Paul explains it this way in Colossians chapter 1 as he describes the goal and purpose of his ministry to the church in Colossae. Notice the similarities as I read from Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant, according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, we can be filled with faith from the past work of Christ, 
for the present work of his growing us in the knowledge of his truth, leading to godliness, and even to the future with the hope of eternal life. In other words, the bottom line is God has worked, he is working, and he will work his perfect will to completion. He who began that good work will finish it. Oh, but friend, if you're here this morning and you've yet to turn to faith in Jesus Christ, you've yet to repent of your sin, the truth is this hope that we're talking about, that Paul writes to Titus about, this hope of eternal life is is not yours. You see, friend, each one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we have no hope of eternal life. We only have death before us. A penalty that we all deserve for the sin in our lives. A death that's eternal. An unending fury of God's wrath and hell. And so there's no future hope for those who aren't turning in faith to Christ. Who are still slaves to sin. But the good news is that you can find hope in Christ. This hope of eternal life can be yours. Not in your own works, but in the work of Christ. When you turn in submission to Christ, you lay aside any of the good works that you've done. You acknowledge that it is Christ who has lived that perfect life that we should have, but we failed to do. And it's only by Christ's death in our place that we have any hope for eternal life. So friend, this morning, if if you would turn in faith to Christ alone, you can have this hope of eternal life. If that's something you would like to do even this morning, please come talk to me or to one of us who have been up here this morning. We would we'd find it a great joy to share more about this hope of eternal life in Christ and Him alone. But church, we have this hope. We have this hope of eternal life. As Paul continues in verse 3, he gives us not only the pattern, and that being, or sorry, the purpose, that being the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of of the truth and the hope of eternal life, he now gives us a pattern or a method for gospel ministry. And that is the preaching of his word. Look at verse 3. In his own time, God has revealed his word in the preaching with which, with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. In this context, his word is simply his message. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Amazingly, God has entrusted his eternal plan of salvation into the hands of people like former persecutors of the church. Those who were vicious enemies against him, he's now entrusted this glorious good news of Christ into their hands. He's entrusted it to Titus, and he's entrusted it to you and to me. You see, the hope of eternal life is brought to light in the proclamation of God's word and it shines even in towns like Sun Prairie and Madison when you and I speak about Jesus. It shines in an island like Crete filled with lazy gluttons, liars when Titus would speak the truth of the gospel and see dead, the dead come to life and so as we speak the gospel Christ is made present. He appears and people meet him in our words. That's an amazing trust that we have. 
We've been entrusted with this glorious message. It doesn't matter whether you have theological training. For our authority does not lie in our training. It doesn't matter if your gifting is like others. Because the authority of our message does not reside in our gifting. The authority of the message we proclaim resides in the message itself. You see, this is God's word. It is his good news of salvation for mankind. It's a message that must be proclaimed. And it's proclaimed with a certainty that God will work through his word. And so let us, like Paul and Titus, share it faithfully as his church, as God's servants on his mission. This letter to Titus is a timely challenge for us as a church. It's needed in the church throughout the United States especially to challenge us to a new and deep appreciation for the gospel and for the gospel going forward. For those all around us who are in danger of hell, they need the witness that the gospel changes lives, that it gives hope, that we as faith-filled people would go out and share this good news is an amazing truth that we've been entrusted with. The faith of a child, as I said earlier, is hard for us to imitate, isn't it? It's hard to imitate Kayla walking off the edge into the arms. I'm pretty sure if any of you were at the pool with me and said, hey, Dan, walk off the edge. Even if it was two and a half feet, I'm not going to have much faith in you catching me. If it was at the deep end, I'm certainly not going to do that. The faith Kayla had in me when she walked off the edge of the pool last Saturday, her faith that I would actually catch her, is something we struggle to emulate in our daily lives. Whether that's because of our past experiences, personal failures. If we're honest with ourselves, being filled with faith just seems too childish, doesn't it? But maybe that's exactly the point of faith. Becoming childish. Becoming childlike. Entrusting not only our past, but our present and our future to the faithful Father, who's proven himself over and over again. To our Father who desires that we be filled with faith as we grow in knowledge and godliness and increase in hope. How? Through the proclamation of his word. For it still works. We can be filled with faith for the God who works even in an island like Crete will work in our lives today. And so Father, you've met us in this word this morning. And as I've prayed this week and this morning that you would fill us with faith, you now can give the increase in those prayers as you see fit. As we read the beginning of this morning from Isaiah 55, even as the rain and snow come, they saturate the earth and give produce, so to your word as it has been shared in song, and now through the opening of the written word, that you would give increase. You would change our lives where our lives need to be changed. You would stir us to fresh faith. You would take the knowledge that we have 
or even the knowledge we need to have, and that you would lead us to godly lives. And Lord, that you would remind us of the certainty that we would have, that all of this labor on earth, whether it's a struggle or whether we find ourselves in a joyous time, it's all, all worth it when we stand before your throne. And you would say, well done. Not well done because of all the works that we've done, because of what your son has done in and through us. So we have that certainty that you, you began a good work and you will complete it. And thank you for this truth this morning. In your name, amen.